Welcome back to another episode of Corn Nation Radio. I'm your host, Patrick Gerhardt, and with me is a big, old-school veteran of the college football <laughs> podcasting world. Today we have Dan Rubenstein of the Solid Verbal. Dan, happy Scott Frost Day. Happy Scott Frost Day. Every day is Scott Frost Day if you have the right attitude. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's great to have you. No, it's it's it, we're, we're coming into a fun time of the year with college football. It's already started. Week zero is over, good or bad, which we'll get into later. But no, having you on the show with your experience would be great. You know, last year was absolutely bad in regards <laughs> yeah. to, to COVID, uh, the fan experience, the play on the field and off the field. Uh, this upcoming year, what, what are your kind of thoughts on this upcoming football season? I'm optimistic that whatever it is that we consider to be normal, that we're going to get closer. Obviously, things are not great everywhere we look with regard to COVID and the country and the world. But there are arguments that things are better. There are arguments that things have been better controlled and we know a lot more than we did a year ago. So that's at least nice. Knowledge is power. I, I agree with everybody who says that. So um, my feeling is it'll be nice if we're able to block out reality for a certain number of hours uh, every Saturday. It'll be nice if people are healthy and nothing bad happens to people during the season. That's what I'm rooting for. I'm rooting for fan noise and fan engagement and all sorts of fun things at football games. And I'm I'm hopeful. I, I'm hopeful that we are going to be able to focus on football more than anything. You've seen the the various conferences, the major conferences, the minor conferences talk about forfeits if a team isn't able to field a team because of health and safety protocols. And so that at least takes some of the the nebulous elements out of college football scheduling and records with one team playing four games and another team in the conference playing nine games and all all sorts of those weird elements. Hopefully will fall by the wayside. So I'm taking it one week at a time, but I am hopeful that we are going to get to a, uh, a familiar place. Do you think because of last year, 2020, that there will be long-term changes because of it that will affect college football? Uh, yeah, it's possible. Um, long-term changes that, that affect and change college football. I think you saw the social issues come to light. You saw, you know, NIL obviously already picked up steam and is now a thing. And so there is, there is more empowerment for players there. There just seems to be more of an open dialogue and open conversation about what college football is as we see, you know, Texas and Oklahoma leaving the big 12 for the sec. I, I think there's just going to be, there's going to be more action in the sport behind closed doors. I think that kind of thing is going to be revealed more and more. Just the the moving pieces, the gears and pulleys that make college football move. We saw that come about last year with, you know, whether college football or the Big Ten or the ACC or the Pac-12, whether or not those conferences are actually going to play football. And we sort of learn more about the is it machinations, 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 I think, of how the business is carried out. And so I think that's not going away. Uh, I think uh, as we've seen the NCAA become less and less relevant, we and that happened last year as well as you know, they weren't making big decisions. Uh, I think that's going to be something that carries forward, that there's going to be more autonomy. I think you know conferences are going to realize their power and shift the conversation and shift the season and shift the postseason and shift scheduling in the way that things happened last year as well. So, yeah, I, I think it's the sort of administrative elements of the sport. 
and the sort of eye on players and the players eye on themselves that's going to be the the big change if that makes any sense no it does do you think in regards to the players kind of having more power with nil and just kind of everything's more in the public do you see issues with that coming down the line i mean this is kind of a new thing for these newfound freedoms that the players seem to have over the last year Mm -hmm. are kind of unprecedented and there's a lot of questions that we've kind of gone on in past podcasts and just talking to other people that really could affect the game long term. Are, are, there, are there any concerns that kind of pop in your head right away? No, not especially. I mean, there was there, there are always the talking points of, you know, the schools with the most money are going to hold the most sway and the, you know, the biggest booster bases. And I, I don't think that's any different than the reality of what we were already dealing with. I think there are always, you know, there's the rule of unintended consequences where, you know, mm-hmm. anything that we perceive to be, you know, forthright and righteous, whatever is going to have sort of uh, unintended consequences. It's going to have consequences. <laughs> it's going to have um, elements. I've, I've used that word a lot, but there are going to be things that shake out that we were not planning on. And I know people looked at that BYU thing where a, a a booster has decided to pay out the scholarship money for, or to put uh, to put walk-ons on scholarship, whatever. I was like, well, the net people are going to have 130 players on. At the end of the day, people, players, high school players, recruits are going to go to schools where they want to play football. I, I think a lot of this is underestimating the intellect of a group, you know, whatever it is, you know, thousands of kids who want to play college football. A top kid is just not going to go to a school to play quarterback or defensive line unless he feels like it is in his best interest as a football player to do so. I I just think that worry is overstated by many people who have that concern. And so, no, I I think this is something that's going to, it's something that should have been in place a long time ago because anybody else can take advantage of their name, image, and likeness. And if you want to, sell weed killer on Instagram because you have a bunch of <laughs> followers and people think, man, he really gets dirty. You know, he really makes all these tackles and he's, he always has a, 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 a dirted up uniform, whatever. Okay. I, I don't see that affecting things. I just, I don't, I think the money is not going to be huge for an overwhelming amount of these kids and the money that is huge. It's a, it's a market. It, there's a market for literally everything in the sport, and I, I have no problem with there being a free market for an Alabama quarterback, a USC defensive lineman, a Minnesota offensive tackle if he has a huge following, or a soccer player at Florida State, or a gymnast at LSU. Like I, I just think, ultimately, people watch for the games, and that it's just once once we actually have kickoff, once we actually have pick sixes, once we actually have you know, bad snaps across the country, people are going to forget about it. I think a lot of those concerns had to do with the fact that it was June, July, whatever, and people are just going to be more concerned with football. We needed topics to talk about. We need to pick and, and, and pull pull out what we know when in reality what's going to happen is stuff we don't know. Right. Uh, in regards to NIL and, and the students, have you noticed, and you don't have to name names per se, but are there? do you feel like the college football administrations out there for the most part, are well-prepared in helping the students with this? Or do you think the students are kind of on their own? I think they're they're doing their absolute best. I, I, I genuinely feel that administrations want to do right by their players. You know, it's it's easy to look at 
ADs and coaches and say, oh, they make all this money. Oh, they're, they're, it's, they're the ones out for themselves and the players are the ones that are always losing. I genuinely think that the people that dedicate their lives to helping an athletic department succeed want to do right by the players in those athletic departments. And so I, I think they're doing everything they can, but I think they're also navigating things as best they can because it's brand new. And what what's going to happen is in a few months, in a year, in three years, somebody is going to be uh, is going to look at the NIL rules and they're going to find a wrinkle that was unforeseen. And whether it was the scholarship thing like with BYU or whether it was a way to open up a store that it wasn't necessarily covered. Like there's just going to be something because as technology changes, I have no idea what social platforms are going to look like in two or three years. I have, nobody does. And so what's going to happen is there's going to be a new platform and there's going to be an element of said platform that is a way for people to make money. And there are going to be college athletes making money in that way that wasn't necessarily in line with the initial NIL rules. And we're going to have to say, okay, how do we adjust to this? Or is this cool? Is this not cool? Who's deciding? Why are they deciding? And so it's just going to be this sort of whack-a-mole along the way. And if the players are winning and they're not hurting anybody and they're not doing anything illegal, I think ultimately everybody's going to be cool with it. No, uh, just moving on to the to the season as a whole, like, what, what do you see out there? Uh, you know, is it going to be the same four teams or six teams that we always get in the college football playoff? Or, do, you know, do you think there's going to be a couple dark horses that are actually going to make this uh, this upcoming season a little bit more interesting? There will be dark horses. There will be teams in the conversation in November. Uh, ultimately, the team's best built to to be in that playoff conversation are the ones that have already been in this conversation before and are annually. It's just it's. The I, I suppose a little bit of the unintended consequence of putting so much money in this basket and excluding certain conferences just because they have a team that won with one or two losses and that's not good enough. And so we are looking at the teams who are best built to lose a maximum of one games. And I know that sounds funny the way I said it, but that was intended. Um, and it's Georgia, Clemson, Alabama, you know, some years LSU, Ohio State, Oklahoma. It's those teams that it's it's not necessarily the the high, high level talent, but it's the depth of talent. It's that their backups are better than everybody else's backups. So when they lose an outside linebacker, when they lose a left guard, when they lose a quarterback, they're best prepared to keep winning games. And so I don't think much has changed when you look at the recruiting rankings, when you look at recent wins, when you look at who is expected to have the best quarterbacks in the country. It There's, there's nothing dramatically different. If you want to say Texas A&M is in that conversation because of what they return or Oregon or Notre Dame or Florida or whoever, that's fine. But I, I, I think there's still a separation between that big four or five and the rest of everybody else. Unless it's just an incredibly strange year and Bryce Young, DJ Uyunglele, and CJ Stroud all happen to just come up flat which would be very strange considering the track records of those schools but that's what you're hoping for i suppose if you want a wide open chaotic november is that those three guys just don't have it or more importantly their backups don't have it or their backups you're right because really throw it (laughs) the guys behind all of them i mean alabama i think is less certain in terms of backups but uh 
Clemson has has a little bit of interesting youth. Georgia for sure does. Ohio State for sure does. Oklahoma for sure does. I think it's Caleb Williams, the number one quarterback, who just came in at, to Oklahoma. He's a freshman this year. So their ceilings are all interesting. But yes, you're, I'm, it, it's hard to see that sort of chaotic environment unfolding. No, I, I, I would fully agree. I mean, it's there, there's not going to be a whole lot of changes outside of the top teams, but, you know, outside of the teams, who are some of the players you're keeping an eye on this year? I, I mean, it's uh, all over at this point. It's, so there's the, the players who are looking to bounce back. There are the players with a lot to prove. There are the players who come in with a lot of draft hype and the players who uh, are just thought of to be already excellent. Um, it's more, to me, honestly, it's more team. It's more like, okay, what does Iowa State look like now that they have a giant magnifying glass on them? What is the rest of, you know, what does new Texas look like? You know, Hudson Card is interesting to me. You know, somebody who's a younger player who comes in with a lot of hype. And is he with the the match of Steve Sarkeesian at head coach at Texas? Is Texas going to be back? That kind of thing. <laughs> like, is he the latest iteration of somebody who is actually going to make a difference in that sort of narrative? Um, no, I, it's it's the bounce back situations like, Mississippi State, who started out really well, then careened off the side of the road, and then actually made a nice little comeback in in terms of competence within the SEC. Obviously, I'm always interested in Oregon, and they have a young quarterback, and will he play at all? He did not win the starting job right away, but his name is Ty Thompson, uh, and Oregon is always going to just mean a whole lot to me. Uh, you know, it's it's those teams that seem poised for a breakthrough, whether it's USC. You know, new coaches are always interesting to me. Um, and it's it's really that second tier, right? It's that second tier after those first five or six. That that's the attainable tier within the sport for a lot more teams than that first tier. So it's North Carolina, it's you know Michigan, Penn State, Wisconsin, any of those teams that can bounce back. And so that to me is interesting. There are names all over the place, and there are names that I always look forward to emerging. You know, a guy like Jordan Addison at Pitt, who was not part of a huge offense but established himself as a freshman, as a go-to receiver. Those are the guys. And even like an example with, with regard to Nebraska, and I'm sure we'll get to the Huskers in a little bit, like what Wandale Robinson was. You're like, oh, this is an undeniable talent, not necessarily swimming in a sea of competence, right? That he is this, this, uh, this amazing player who is able to shine despite some obstacles around him. Or everything around him. But yeah, no, or I, everything, I, yes, yes. <laughs> for the most part. And that's why he left. But, uh, you know, you mentioned Oregon. You're an Oregon grad. I, mm-hmm. Part of the reason I why, I want, why I wanted to bring you on this podcast is to talk about the Pac-12. It, it's, it's a conference that's, if you ask me, is uh, a little bit disrespected in the grand scheme of things. I, you know, they've had a, a rough few years in terms of national recognition, but you know, mm-hmm. I, I personally kind of blame that on a couple things. As we all know, the the poor timing in terms of the TV slots. You've got uh, national media that's heavily East Coast, if you want to go in the East Coast bias aspect of it. But, you know, it, it, grand scheme of things, it's a very good conference with some very good football. I, I think it's fun football. Sure. What, what's, uh, what are your views on the conference this year? You know, who's going to be good? Who's, who's going to be not too good? You know, like, what just... You know, give us what you got on the Pac-12. I largely think everybody has sort of gotten it right going into the season. There's no one team. Like, Utah's always at least pretty good, usually good. 
Arizona State is that team that's up and coming. UCLA, I think, has gotten incrementally better, as we saw, a nice step forward against Hawaii. Oregon is the most talented team in the conference to me. USC will show themselves to be really good at times and look flat other times and not able to sort of, for lack of a better term, step on people's necks. Like, they just have not had that killer instinct these past few years and the way that, you know, they snuck by the Arizona schools last year. And so I think largely there's nothing going that's going to be too new. I think a lot of what surrounds the Pac-12's reputation and the thought about the Pac-12's place in the sport is the fact that they have not had that headline excellent team. We don't look at the ACC necessarily and think, oh man, I don't know, that conference does not have a lot of good teams. Clemson's excellent. And so we think, well, the ACC has somebody excellent. That counts. You look at the back half of the Big Ten. You look at the back half of the ACC, you look at the back half of the SEC, you look at the back half of the Pac-12, Big 12, whatever, you're not seeing too much that's different. Like, the back half of the SEC is not at all impressive. The fact is, though, the top of the SEC is impressive. So there's a vacuum when you have Washington struggling a little bit, Oregon struggling a little bit, USC struggling a little bit. All it takes is the Pac-12 having one and a half really good teams. So I don't think the Pac-12 is far off, But you couple that with the time zone element and the element of having a network nobody can watch and the fact that a team that was supposed to win the conference going away last year in Oregon, well, they lose to Oregon State and Cal in ugly fashion. And they beat USC and it just sort of goes in line with the, you know, snake eating itself uh, line of thinking with the conference. So it, it really is not a situation where the conference is far off. It's that year after year. The top of the conference doesn't necessarily acquit itself very well. We saw, you know, Oregon, Auburn, you know, a few years ago, USC gets throttled by Alabama. And so that is going to set talking points throughout the year with what happens in early September. So, no, I I, I don't think there's any infallible conference. You know, the, the top of the Big Ten, what, what was it last year? What was the top of the Big Ten last year? Northwestern and Ohio State. Northwestern did not have a good offense. But they were good Don't enough. Don't forget Indiana. <laughs> Don't I? I am forgetting a little bit Indiana because I watched that Maryland game. Um, and Indiana was really fun, and it was a really good story, and they were fun to watch, and they pushed Ohio State. But we're not talking about you know a, a conference with four killers at the top of it. We're talking about a conference that said, "Thanks, Ohio State. Thank you very much once again for for carrying everything for us." So. I, I don't think the Pac-12 is all that different than these other conferences. They just need the top to come through. In in regards to outside of the top of the conference, the USC's, Oregon's, and Washington to a certain extent, who are some of the teams in the Pac-12 you see maybe punching punching up this year? Sure. Uh, Oregon State is interesting. They're now starting Sam Neuer, who started at Colorado last year at quarterback, which is an always fun, weird thing. He was a quarterback, then turned safety back to quarterback for Colorado, and now is playing quarterback for Oregon State. I think they're very well coached, and they've done a pretty good job of developing talent. They don't have the depth, and they don't have the star power, but they're just going to be a hard out against everybody. Washington is going to have what I think, even without their top edge rusher who tore his Achilles, ZTF, they should have a very good defense and they have a very good offensive line. And that'll win them a lot of games. Arizona is far off. Colorado, I think, is going to have a down year. I just don't think they have the bodies. Utah starting Charlie Brewer, which I'm not a huge fan of at quarterback, but otherwise they return a ton. They don't have the pop on offense, but that's nothing new for Utah. They've always won without that. Cal is interesting to me. I don't think they have the star power on offense, though. 
they're going to be a hard out. But punching above, I think this week's UCLA-LSU game, I don't know when this show is airing, hopefully before UCLA absolutely pummels LSU or, or not. Um, I think UCLA is really interesting. This is year four of Chip Kelly. They have the talent in a number of places. They, they don't have it at receiver. But in terms of what they have up front on both sides of the ball, what they have speed-wise on defense, I think they are in a noticeably better place. And they could win eight or nine games, which certainly has not been the case. So moving back to the top of the conference, one of the major storylines over the past few years is, is uh, USC and the coach nobody can remember their name of. <laughs> what is But Pac-12 really is kind of one of those conferences. It's, it's, like, it's like the Big Ten where they kind of need Ohio State to be good. The Pac-12 needs USC to be good. Sure. What what does UC, USC really need to do to kind of bring themselves back to the forefront of college football? I don't think it's necessarily just a coaching, recruiting thing, right? USC had a down recruiting year a couple of years ago. They hired you know, Oregon's ace recruiter, and he takes over, and they, their recruiting is back, Dante Williams. Um, so... What USC was able to do in the 2000s, and there was a bit of a, a power vacuum in the Pac, then Pac-10 as well, was really splash onto the scene. It's as social media is coming about. It's as you know, digital media is coming about in general, where you have this exciting program. You have Pete Carroll, who's a big personality, and that that even shocked them, right? He's bringing in famous people to practice in the sidelines and pulling pranks, and he's drawing the attention not just of people in LA. But if you look at their recruiting, if you look at the attention that they get, they're drawing national attention and doing it pretty quickly. He's going out and recruiting the best receiver in Florida and the best running back in Colorado and the best running back in Texas and the best offensive lineman in Arizona. And so he's he's not just getting these great players, but he's kneecapping his rivals at the same time, especially on the West Coast, who nobody put that type of energy into recruiting. And so USC is by far the most talented team, but they're playing in a way where they're playing with the best, some of the best players in the country. They put together some historically great recruiting classes, but it's the staff is great. Pete Carroll has an eye for hiring, you know, Lane Kiffin and Steve Sarkeesian and Norm Chow, and he's running the defense. And so at, at a certain point, it was USC was incredibly fortunate to sort of stumble into this great college coach who turned into a great NFL coach. And so to a certain extent, it's lightning in a bottle. It can happen again, but that was lightning in a bottle for what the program and the conference and what college football needed in the early to mid-2000s. It's a lot more difficult now. USC still has the advantages of being in Southern California. They can still attract national attention, but it's a, it's a, a matter of branding and excitement and attention getting. As we know, we just saw Texas go to the SEC. They didn't go to the SEC because they keep winning so much and the SEC wants in on all that Texas winning. They went in on that because of the brand, because of the recognition, because of the the place that Texas has in the sport. And I think that's the big thing that suffered these past few years. Clay Helton with, you know, Lane Kiffin and Steve Sarkeesian, not necessarily having the charisma and the vision of Pete Carroll let alone the ability to coach, the ability to hire, the ability to have, again, that vision for the program. So what will it take for USC to get back there? They're going to have to find the next Pete Carroll, which, good luck, I guess. But everything is possible. Everything is possible, but I just don't know if that guy exists. So they could go out and find some, you know, if they want to hire Mario Cristobal from Oregon, 
he he's not that guy, but he can recruit really well. He can do uh, some of those things. They can go. James Franklin has some of that charisma and personality and presence at Penn State, but the in-game coaching isn't always there. So it's it's a patchwork thing. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is beyond fully invest in finding that guy if Clay Helton is not that guy, and don't turn your back after a year, after two years, after three years. But LA is a different place. There's there's not a huge school in Chicago. There's not a huge school in New York or Philadelphia or, or Houston. There's not that huge Power 5 program. It's a unique uh, both advantage and disadvantage to be in L.A. to me. No, that 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 makes sense. And your, your ending point of it, it's an advantage and a disadvantage being in L.A. makes a lot of sense, especially in today's world. If you were to – if you had the, the opportunity to sell somebody on – Pac-12 football. Let's have fun with this. If you had that sure. opportunity, what would you tell them? You're not really watching games that are opposed by other games. If you're staying up late, you, you have something unique with Pac-12 football because of the later start times, because of the Pacific time zone. You have an interesting collection of styles and coaches, right? You have, you know, Jimmy Lake is, is sort of louder at Washington and, uh, you know, David Shaw is a little bit more reserved at Stanford, but there's a specific identity to what Stanford's doing. Like stylistically, they're all over the place. Oregon's trying to be a little bit of everything and has a creative offensive coordinator. USC is running the air raid and they've got a ton of interesting speed on offense. Um, it's it's more just that I think a lot of those games are going to have above average competence. And with that comes the sort of good gaminess they're going to be competitive they're going to be competitive games i don't think when you have a conference where nobody is you know there's not four teams that are just going to blow everybody out you're going to get good tv you're going to get good entertainment out of the conference because i think there, there are a lot of smart offensive minds in the conference and there's a, while there's a clear hierarchy now nobody is i mean everybody's vulnerable right oregon has its own vulnerabilities i don't love their quarterback situation right now. I don't love Washington's offense right now. And Arizona State has, they're, they're down three assistant coaches right now because of an internal and external investigation. So I just think you're going to get a lot of 34-31 games and that that's fun. No, that's a, that's, that's a good point. I think you could probably sell anybody on that point. If you want something... Different if you want something a little bit later, because let's be honest, I don't know anybody who doesn't love Pac-12 after dark. Sure. Uh, it's a great conference to go to. Uh, shifting gears, this is technically a Husker podcast. So sure. Nebraska just got beat by Illinois at week zero in Champaign, a very unfortunate loss. Nebraska's kind of reeling. The fan base is on death watch at this moment in time, and we've gotten a full season to play what are your thoughts on this 2021 nebraska football team man (laughs) (laughs) um okay so i don't have fully developed thoughts i've watched them play one game i've long been on the record that you can't fully judge a team based on the first game and generally speaking the second game uh, at least against a real opponent i'll do respect they have fordham right this coming week that's correct yeah fordham i don't Uh, know if you're gonna be able to fully you can judge it feels like the NBA Summer League a little bit that you can't judge what Nebraska does against Fordham unless they're not good against Fordham. Uh, so if you can't really judge a player in the NBA Summer League for for playing well, but you can judge him if he doesn't play well. So 
what we what we do is we judge Nebraska based on September as a whole. Do they show improvement? Did, did or when we look back at the Illinois game, are we saying, okay, they they really messed that up, but they just came out of the gates just kind of off. And it's possible. Now, we should also look at Illinois this next month. And if Illinois doesn't look good at all, like we expect them to, we don't expect them to look good all that mile, all that often because it's a new coach and the, the talent just is not in Champaign right now. That's something that's concerning in addition to what we saw out of Nebraska week one. So what I expect is Nebraska's defense should be pretty good. It should be fine this year. And we are going to get an inconsistent Adrian Martinez, who is not necessarily always put in the best position to succeed, be it because of the line play in front of him or be it because of offensive play calling, offensive game planning, and the lack of a true group of dangerous receivers, pass catchers in general. So I think they're going to win some of those clunkers, but the schedule is difficult enough where it's hard to have a lot of faith in the Huskers. It's hard after what well, this is year four, correct? Of Scott Frost. It is. It is year four. Are These back. are, this is fully his roster. It's fully his culture. It's fully his decision-making. It's fully his coaching staff. And it's, it's just very difficult to see anything dramatically different from what we saw on Saturday, that there are just going to be times where the team shoots itself in the foot, be it bad snaps or blown coverages or penalties and that inopportune times where a far more disciplined and better coached and better developed team isn't as affected by those moments where they're shot in the foot that Illinois is they're fine. Like they're not a disastrous team. They're not a good team. Nebraska with the head start that it had the four year head start to build a team to beat Illinois, not separating itself at all is, is kind of a nightmare. And there's more to talk about with Nebraska big picture, but it's hard to see things dramatically getting better. No, that was actually a very nice way of putting things, to be honest with you, <laughs> more so than what I've been hearing over the past few days sure. from our fan base. Uh, in regards to the bigger picture with Nebraska, which you mentioned, what <sighs> Nebraska is a unique place, like a totally. lot of these, uh, like a lot of these small, honestly small market teams. I mean, it, it's not just Nebraska. There's others out there, but you know, for Nebraska to build themselves back up into just a competitive nature. You know, what, what do you see Nebraska having to do? Nebraska is going to have to play the long game. The, sc- the schools that succeed, despite having geographic or size or whatever disadvantage, and I don't know what number Nebraska is in terms of population. Just 1.9 million. 1.9 million. So that probably does not have them in the top... <laughs> 30, 35 in this I think country. I think they're 37, maybe. Yeah, they're some, somewhere around there. 37, yeah. 38th, okay? Their geographic footprint, they're, they're kind of on an island within the Big Ten. They're not squarely in the Midwest. They're not obviously not on the West Coast. They're, they're in the Plains, but they're not in the Big 12, and they haven't been for a long time. So they're, they're kind of in no man's land. So what the Huskers need, to me, is a head coach who can 
reach out to various parts of the country, largely the Midwest to me, because that's where the, the footprint is and that's where kids are going to be playing. They're going to be playing against Iowa and Minnesota, Northwestern, what have you. And a coach who is going to appeal, a coach who is going to hire a staff who has connections within the Midwest and, you know, maybe to a certain extent, Texas, California, Florida, whatever, for higher three-star level guys, and is going to say, here's what we're doing from day one. Here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. And here is what success is. What I think happened with Scott Frost, and I admire the ambition and I admire the swing, is between his time at Oregon, getting that taste of big, big time on a big national stage, and then vaulting UCF to that big national stage going undefeated, is he said, I'm going to turn Nebraska into a, a 10 and 2, 11 and win pro, uh, program, which is what it was and what it should be, because Nebraska is a powerhouse and I went there and this is what I believe. When instead, he should have gone into Nebraska thinking, how do I consistently make Nebraska eight and four? How do I how do we go seven and five, eight and four, nine and three? How do we build the foundation of an eight and four Big Ten program? And I think he came in and I admire the confidence, once again, admire the swing, as that sort of coaching outsider and said, Well, here's what worked here and here's what worked there. Here's what we're gonna do at Nebraska. And what works in the Big Ten, what works at Nebraska now is not necessarily what works at UCF, is not necessarily what works at Oregon, right? And so I think there was a miscalculation early on that a new coach, be it next year, year out, whenever there is a new coach, I think there is going to be a certain amount of humility needed to say, how do we build a bowl team in Lincoln and just ignore everybody who has unrealistic expectations. How do we build a bowl team? How do we beat Northwestern consistently? How do we beat Minnesota more often than not? And a lot of that is going to come down to finding diamonds in the rough in the relative area, maybe going after North Dakota state recruits, whatever it is and saying, here's how we're going to get to six wins. Here's how we're going to get to seven and eight wins. And not trying to skip steps, which is what, when you look at Scott Frost recruiting California, recruiting Florida, going after blue chip guys, all well and good and great if you want to win 10, 11 games. But there is something different. You just you want guys who want to be at Nebraska and who want to develop into winning players. And I don't think that's always the case when you take those big, big swings. And I don't know if that sounds backwards and if that sounds like sort of a loser's mentality or something like that. But I really do think it's sort of that that cultural thing of like, okay, how do we just find the best left guard that we can possibly get realistically? And I just I got the sense in watching this team, and maybe it was, you know, marrying the program to Adrian Martinez. And like I just you watch Luke McCaffrey and you're like, well, what did what did he see in Luke McCaffrey as a quarterback? It was very difficult to watch Luke McCaffrey take snaps and think, this is the guy he thought was going to be the future of the program. Like there was just those elements of evaluation. There's just there there needs to be. This is all very extremely long-winded, self-serving way of saying a, a better coach, <laughs> somebody better at evaluating, somebody who is better at saying, "Here is my very very specific vision for winning seven or eight games." There needs to, in a way, there needs to be a more emphasis on development. You you look at the more of the, as we say around, you know, bring up around here, the Iowa or Wisconsin model. Sure. Where, you know, you really just kind of go and say, okay, this is what we have. What can we do with this to make it the next three, four years? Instead of, you know, saying we're going to send 200 scholarship offers to all these four and five star players. Right. 
And then trying to get them to campus, which hurt last year with a lot of schools, not just Nebraska, Mm -hmm. but getting them on campus, make sure they fit in, make sure they buy in, and then not having them in a way kind of just stagnate talent-wise for two, three, four years, where in reality, if they went to another school, they could have probably impressed, you know, improved upon themselves. Sure. And that's just something that Nebraska has not seen. I think, I, I mean, you, you, you hit the nail on the head with that. It's just something Nebraska has not seen. And, and the question is, is the current coaching staff the one to do that? Because, you know, you, you, you pointed out, you know, Scott was at Oregon, which you saw a lot. You know, mm-hmm. I, I remember those, I remember those solid verbal episodes <laughs> where, where Scott was calling, calling the, uh, calling the plays, but then he went to UCF, which again, somewhat similar, but also different you know, sure. in a lot of ways. And now he's going back to the middle of the country. And, you know, a lot of what worked at both those places is it doesn't seem like it's necessarily working right now, you know, for the no, most it, part. So, it took, yeah. by the way, it took 20 years to build up that Oregon reputation and that brand from 1994 mm-hmm. until, you know, they go, they go to the Fiesta Bowl in 2001 and they have the flash uniforms and everything like that. But in terms of like what it took before Scott Frost arrived there when Chip Kelly hired him, it took decades to build up that specific brand, and that worked on the West Coast. There's the proximity to California. There's ability to to get pretty good quarterbacks consistently, which Oregon was able to do and develop. And it was the vision of the administration to say, we're going to go get this, you know, this guy from New Hampshire to be our offensive coordinator and eventually our head coach because he was a fit. He was a fit for Eugene, Oregon, because New Hampshire and Oregon are not all that different. And so it's finding that fit. It's finding those those the the unsexy searches. And that's why Iowa State, an unsexy place in the college football universe, is winning on a huge level because they identified their guy. They did the unsexy things in hiring and development and recruiting. And now they're recruiting better. But they did the unsexy things ahead of the sexy things. And that's where... I, I just I don't blame Nebraska fans for having unrealistic expectations. Now, Nebraska fans remember greatness within this program. I just think there is within the administration and within the hiring practice, there was something so tantalizing about the Scott Frost narrative that they were unable to pass up what everybody was telling them. This is the obvious move. This is the obvious candidate when it was the sexy candidate. It would in retrospect was not the correct candidate. But Nebraska, it, it's just so much more important to find somebody fully bought in to the challenges that coaching Nebraska on an island brings in 2021, 2022, whatever. That's a great big picture look at this. I, I think you you've brought up a lot of the good points that I think a lot of people are finally seeing in and out of the program in terms of this is going to take some time. And it's sure. not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be in a few years. You know, there's no, hey, eh, this is our four-year plan for a national championship. It's it, it's a lot more long-term. It's a lot more development. And, you know, it's not just Nebraska. It's a lot of schools. In fact, I'd say a majority of schools, you got to look at that fit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Oregon, you know, I didn't even think of the connection between New Hampshire and Oregon. You, you are right now that you mentioned that there is a lot of yeah. similarities between those two states, considering they're on the exact opposite ends of the country. By but, the way, I should uh, add, mm-hmm. Nebraska as a, play, a football place uh, to, to go to the stadium, to see the facilities. I've, I've been to games. I've, I've taken tours of the facilities and the, you know, the Sioux weight room and, and everything like that. And I've eaten dinner in Lincoln and it's not far from Omaha. And 
Nebraska as a football place in the college football universe, it rules. It's fantastic. And it's so far ahead of a lot of places that are succeeding more consistently. But it's all like, so I, I think there's a foundation there. But there is just that readjustment of what works here, what's the vision here. We can't rely on, you know, the nearby talent like a lot of places can. And we have to just hone in on a specific identity, considering we're sort of in no man's land where we are in Nebraska. I don't say that in a a pejorative way. I just say that because Nebraska is geographically removed from the, the conference footprint. So that to me is the fascinating thing. And yes, I know Nebraska borders Iowa, but <laughs> still there is that element of a big 12 team on foreign soil, still a big 12 team on foreign soil, still to me where so much of the history is tied to the big 12 and big eight that they still feel like the new guy. And there's that element to me. So you're saying we don't have to burn it down to the ground. You don't have to burn it down to the ground. <laughs> no, I, I, I think there's so much that's good to, to sort of, to showcase to to players, you know, across the region, whatever the region may be, but it's and this is, I mean, it comes back to Oregon as well. It's really, really vetting players as well. It's you know one of the things you see with Iowa, with Wisconsin, and maybe less so now, is you see guys sticking around. You see that whether it's the culture, whether it's the place, whether it's the proximity to home, whatever it is, guys stick around in Wisconsin. When a, a, a linebacker, an outside linebacker graduates, there's a junior waiting to step in because he has been developed and he has waited his turn and he has not gotten antsy and he feels like he's been treated properly and correctly within that program. That's what culture is. It's just making kids want to both come and stay. And so that to me is going to be huge for what is realistically a conversation about who's next. Funny, everything you just mentioned is basically what I was brought up on in regards to how Nebraska did things, it's sure it, 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 it makes you scratch your head how far it looks like we've we've gone from that. Not just with this coaching staff, but with previous ones. Um, you know, it's been a, almost twenty years that those processes seem to have gone by the wayside. Even though everybody talks about them, the actions don't exactly pan out. But nonetheless, we're we're about out of time, Dan. I really want to. Thank you so much for coming on here. Uh, let everybody know where they can find you, the Patreon page and everything. And I'll sure. give them a little uh, – end it, end it with uh, what pizza you most recently made. Oh, man. <laughs> I, we can do a whole other pizza show. I will give anybody any time in the world if they will let me blather on about pizza making at home. Um, you, you know, if this me- season goes as bad as it as I think it might, I mm-hmm. might call you in October and we could do like a couple hour show on pizza. So. I'm ready. I don't have you made <laughs> have you like made an effort to make pizza at home? Yeah, we uh, my family we uh, a couple years ago we started doing pizza Sundays. Oh, so incredible. for me and my yeah we 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 make pizza every every Sunday for lunch and I I got an outdoor pizza oven now so yeah no I what did you I, go I, with I, uh oh, what's it called search of the Z I think. Oh, I don't. Oh, there's a uh, well, there's a rock box. There's an uni. Uni, sorry. There you an go. An uni. I can those never remember great. the name of it. Yeah, no, I really like it. Um, you get one of those, and it changes how you look at cooking pizza. Definitely. Look at you. You're. I mean, I should be asking you. Um, uh, no. <laughs> this is no. So you can find me at the Solid Verbal, and that's a college football podcast I've been doing for quite some time with Ty Hilden Brandt. 
And uh, I also host a show called Big Boy Bets with Jeff Schwartz, uh, and former NFL offensive lineman, also an Oregon Duck. And that's about wagering and football. And uh, if people really, really like the show, you can support us at verballers.com and become a, a Patreon subscriber. Become a Patreon subscriber and thank everybody for listening.